Now that it's winter, it's getting hard to consider fire a threat, but we can be sure that fire will return next season, as it has for thousands of years. In the off-season, all we can do is wait, plan, and research to try and stay ahead of the curve. People like Glenn Palmgren, a fire management specialist at the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, make their living studying fire and trying to improve how practitioners use fire to improve our ecosystems. So should we let some wildfires burn? Are liability laws in Michigan fair? Are Alaskan elementary schools comfortable places to make maps? In my interview with Glenn, he answered these questions and taught me a lot about fire in the process. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Learn Baby Burn, the Michigan Prescribed Fire Council's very own podcast. My name is Paul Mayer, Administrator and Treasurer for the Fire Council, and I'm joined today by Glenn Palmgren from the Michigan DNR. Glenn, thank you for being here. Pleasure to be here. So, Glenn, you are a fire management specialist at the DNR. I am. Um, tell me a little bit about what your work involves and how you ended up in this role at the DNR. Okay. Well, my work involves uh, kind of three main things. One is uh, prescribed fire, um, another is fire training, and the third is interagency dispatch. So like when we send people out of state or something like that for fire. So what led you, I understand that you're an avid birder and I understand this might have been yeah. um, a transition that led you to the DNR. So if not fire, what led you into uh, the DNR initially? Um, it started out as just an interest in birds, and I actually took an ornithology class back in uh, middle school, so that kind of got me interested in, in birds and wow. the outdoors and everything. And so when it came time to go to college, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. It was between, I think, computer science and ornithology, so two very different things. But <laughs> <laughs> I ended up going to uh, University of Michigan and uh, took some just basic natural resource management classes and realized there was more to the outdoors than just birds, too. Kind of broadened my my range of interest. Then in, after going to school at, uh, at U of M, get my bachelor's degree in natural resource ecology management, um, and then I went on for my master's degree um, also in that field in uh, forest ecology. Um, and when I worked on my master's I really wanted to incorporate both birds and um, kind of general ecology into it as well. So working on uh, Kirtland's warbler um, mm. occupancy in jack pine forests. Mm. So that also got me exposed a little bit to fire too. Um, not actually seeing it in person, but seeing the results of fire mm. uh, from the Mac Lake wildfire. Right. Uh, that's where my, a lot of my research was done, right in the old Mac Lake fire, 1980 burn scar. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot written on the Mac Lake fire, but um, it essentially was a, uh, a prescribed burn that, that went wrong, it escaped. Um, due to weather conditions and a lot of other factors, and ended up burning um, thousands of acres and losing infrastructure losing um, and losing a life, too. That's uh, one of the reasons why at DNR we're so focused um, intensely on, on training and having qualified people and that sort of thing mm -hmm. to do burning. Have you felt this focus shift the public's perception on burning? Do people seem more comfortable seeing that you guys are doing the legwork? I think so. We don't encounter a lot of resistance to prescribed burning now, um, but part of that is our messaging too, I think, and there haven't been any major prescribed fire accidents since then really in Michigan, so um, that's that's part of the, I think, what's brought people's confidence up too. We've that's had, great. you know, 30 years of, of doing it well, right, right. so I think that's started to get around that, but all it takes is one person doing it wrong to basically set back the whole program in the state Absolutely. for many years. Yeah. You got into this because of birds, and you said you immediately started specializing in forestry, is that right? Yeah, forest ecology. So how does fire play into the ecology of, I guess, of forests in Michigan, but also as far as the birds and animals that might encounter those forests? Yeah, well, most of our um, 
systems in Michigan, most of our ecosystems are fire dependent. In most Michigan. of them. Most of them, yeah. Wow. I would say so. Everything from uh, cattail marshes to to prairies. So even our even places people don't think of burning very much, the the northern hardwoods, um, even those are a fire system. It's just that fire only occurs every you know four or five hundred years in those sites. It's a very long return interval. But when fire does occur, it causes things like hemlock to regenerate and things like that. So it it does have an impact on those systems long term. So I'm imagining if you can see this in the plants of those areas that you can also find the animals being fire dependent as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the animals depend on the, pl- on the plants and their habitat. So if the habitat's fire dependent, then the animals are kind of fire dependent by necessity. Right. And they kind of all, every species, plant and animal has its own adaptations to fire where it can, you know, even if it's killed by fire, um, it has adaptations to be able to allow it to recolonize sites. Right. I'm curious, it makes sense to me, uh, animals that live in the understory, how they could benefit from fire and how they mm-hmm. could also be f- terrified of fire and run away from it. Right. But I'm curious about birds' interactions with burned uh, ecosystems and how they depend on fire-dependent ecosystems. Yeah, I guess Kirtland's warbler is a great example. Um, that, that bird uh, really has to have jack pine that is 5 to about 20 feet tall, something like that. It's got a very specific range of time and a specific density in a natural conditions that only occurs um, in the presence of fire. So otherwise the jack pine gets really old and kind of falls apart and then other species take over the site, kind of succession plays through. Um, on those sites, even on the driest sites, um, you kind of lose that, that structure that you get with a freshly burned uh, jack pine stand. So that can be mimicked with forestry practices now where it's done through planting. Um, but a lot of the other plants in that system, things like hills thistle and, and threatened endangered species, that system plants um, and insects even are adapted to that fire. So, so having kind of a naturally burned system can provide even better habitat for some of those species. Gotcha. Um, other species, there's, there's blackback woodpeckers. Um, they like the kind of freshly burned charred bark of trees. So they actually, are, they actually will, I don't know how they do it, but they sense the areas that have been recently burned and they'll start picking at the bark and picking insects out of the trees. Wow. So that's kind of their, their, their thing. So. Yeah. So as a fire management specialist, uh, do you get to burn a lot or is a lot of what you do more infrastructural and informational? Uh, it's both. Um, I'm kind of not one of the primary people who burn on the ground. We have a lot of fire operations staff that do uh, most of that, but um, we don't have a lot of people qualified to do burning in Michigan. So, um, uh, relatively speaking, compared to our need for burning, we don't have a lot of people anyway. With the lack of people, are we sourcing from other states potentially? I know that a lot of what you do is send people to other states, so I wonder if you if there's any exchange, like a foreign exchange student or something. Yeah, that's a good question. We we haven't in DNR um, worked with other states on prescribed fire. We usually do that pretty much with our own staff. But I know, uh, for example, Forest Service, uh, just recently, they've done a couple of prescribed burns and had our, some DNR people help out on those. We have called in people from other states and others to help us with wildfire. So yeah, when our folks go out of state, they also don't do a lot of prescribed burning out of state. It's mostly wildfire suppression work, but a lot of the skill set kind of translates and the same qualifications translate to both. Do you think that could be beneficial, perhaps, in the future, having prescribed fire teams go between states, or is it sort of it could, not yeah. necessary? No, it could. We certainly have a, a big unmet need for getting burns done in Michigan. So a, a key thing is just making sure that people have the same qualifications that our staff would have. You mentioned the training required to do prescribed fire to do wildfire in Michigan. Right. I've read some literature that says that there's sort of a gap in the laws that prescribed fire relies upon to uh, exist, that there's not really necessarily exact specifications for what a prescribed burn boss needs in order to burn in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, is this true, or are there sort of guidelines maybe established by the DNR outside of this law 
or different laws that do directly outline how to put prescribed fire on the ground? Yeah, it's a good question. It is kind of a sticky one, too. Um, I'm not a total expert on forest fire law in Michigan, but I'll, I'll kind of preface it with that. I'm learning, so this is one of the new things with my new job here. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, the way the system is, works in Michigan right now is um, for federal lands, the federal government has their own authority that we essentially can't tell them what they can and can't do on federal land gotcha. uh, in Michigan. So within state and private lands, though, the, the DNR kind of has initial response authority for wildfire. but. In southern Michigan and parts of other areas as well, we've delegated that authority to local fire departments. So in places where DNR still maintains that overall authority for burning, um, the only way that somebody could do a burn on their property would be to get a permit from DNR, basically a burn permit. And in those areas where DNR has delegated that authority to local townships or cities, then people would have to contact their township or city to get that authority. And essentially the fire chief of that township or city with whatever local ordinances they have has the ultimate authority to say yes or no, you can, can or can't burn. Right. So all of that said, there's nothing really that says what qualifications you have to have to do that burning. You just mm -hmm. have to be able to convince whoever it is you're getting that permit from to give you the permit. So if you're you know, just some landowner that wants to burn their site and you can convince your local fire chief that you can do it safely and they give you a permit, then you're legal to do it. And then in areas where DNR is granting those permits, if you can convince the local DNR person that you can do it safely, then you can get your permit and, and do it. So, so yeah, there's no real requirement for training or anything to be able to do burning on your own property. That said though, there is some liability that goes with burning, that if your fire gets away, and you either smoke out your neighbor by creating a nuisance for them, or your fire gets away and burns up their property, then you could have some liability um, for that. So in Michigan, fairly recently, the forest fire law was rewritten to try to take some of that liability and say that if you do your burn, if you follow a certain set of criteria, if you have a burn plan, if this burn plan has these certain things in it and you've burned under certain conditions and your fire escapes still or your fire causes a nuisance to someone else, that your liability can be limited a little bit. So in the way the law was written in Michigan is that in order for all that to happen, one of those conditions is the person running the burn has to be a certified burn manager in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And it basically, in law, it said that DNR has the authority to set up that program and to regulate who is and who isn't a certified burn manager in Michigan. And it's, it outlines what those requirements have to be and some of the training that has to happen and that sort of thing that has to happen. Um, but it, the law didn't provide any funding for DNR to implement that program at all. So it's a program that's in there in law, but we don't have anybody that's actually dedicated to setting up that training that's supposed to be required. So nobody has really put together that training, nobody's put together the certification, the tracking program. It's very doable and could happen, but because it's not in place, we essentially have this thing now where you can have your liability limited um, if you operate under these conditions, but one of those conditions can't be met right. because you can't become a certified burn manager at this point <laughs> in Michigan. So. So I guess to move away from who's certified to do burning, are there any recommendations you would have for people interested in burning to do it as safely as possible? I would recommend that they work with the Michigan Prescribed Fire Council and get involved in, in learning more about prescribed fire and how to do fire safely and how to meet objectives. And the fire council is a great way of doing that. Uh, it's probably the best way of getting um, individuals and private landowners and folks who don't have an in with an agency. It's the kind of, it's, that's their in <laughs> to, get, to get in and meet all the folks that do a lot of prescribed burning and learn more about it. And Prescribed Fire Council, I know, puts on uh, some training classes in conjunction with the agencies. 
So it's, I, I would recommend folks doing burning be at least a firefighter type two and get at least your basic firefighter training. So preferably you would have a lot more than that or, or work with either at someone else who has um, on your site. But um, that, that would be my recommendation for sure. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so since you've been a part of the DNR, specifically in the fire mm -hmm. uh, side of things, which I imagine has been for longer than you've been a fire specialist. Yeah, yeah, I've been doing fire ever since I was in parks and since the very first year I started. Um, have you noticed a difference in how the DNR treats burning and how burns actually go down, the funding for burning? Has there been a shift in the 20 years you've been burning? I would say, yeah, there has. I think, I think there's actually more support for burning now, um, and I think there's more burning happening now than they did when I first started. One of the reasons why DNR wants to be involved in the fire council, probably more than we have been, we should, should be, but um, we, we really want to be involved in the fire council because it's in our best interest to make sure that the public and others are burning safely and, and getting burns done and understand the value of prescribed burning because it helps us do burns better on state land and helps us with our fire protection mission um, to make sure that we're not having forest fires and things starting from prescribed burns going wrong. You said that the DNR is burning more now than they ever really have. Um, I'm wondering how that's being affected by climate change, because I understand that might make burning more convenient almost in some situations or more possible in places where it previously hadn't been, it might, yeah. but it also is potentially uh, much less safe. So I wonder if you're feeling that impact. Potentially, yeah. I mean, there are some er some time frames when we act might actually be wetter uh, in Michigan, yeah, like in yeah. the spring, for example. So some of our traditional, what we think of as our traditional burn season in you know April and May, may not be our as much our traditional burn season in the future. So it, it may be that we end up burning at different times of year more. So I, I don't see climate change reducing our ability to get burns done. If anything, I see it increasing our our need to get burns done and probably our ability to get burns done as well. Yeah. So yeah. Might be one of the only benefits of climate change I've heard of yet. <laughs> Might be truly the first. There you go. Um, so part of what you do for your job, and I'm sure you do this for other people as well as yourself, is this mm -hmm. interagency transferring of people between states. Yeah. Uh, so what's that like? What's it like to travel to these other states and see fire presented in other ways? See these different ways of interacting with fire, different fire cultures. Um, is it sort of markedly different or is it kind of the same? Is it kind of homogenous? There's a lot of similarities and differences. I mean, depending on where you go, the places I've been fortunate enough to travel to um, primarily were, have been kind of the, the Pacific Northwest, the Washington State area and, and Montana. I've worked in those areas on wildfire and, and seeing some of the, the attitude towards fire and the, the way it's presented. It, actually, there's a lot of similarities between Washington and in parts of Montana to, to Michigan mm -hmm. in the way that the public views fire. Um, they see a lot more fire, I think, than folks in Michigan do. So they may be a little bit more exposed to it than we are. But when you actually start talking to individual landowners, I was a field observer on a couple of fires, um, which is basically a data collector and a mapper. Mm -hmm. So I've gone out and just walked around in doing that. Sometimes you come across landowners, um, you walking across their land and you'd knock on their door and we're mapping fire line as the fire burned over their property and their grazing land or whatever it happens to be. And you talk to them and hear about some of their attitudes and also public meetings, you get some input from folks. And I hear a lot of the same things that we hear in Michigan. So some people very supportive of fire, very supportive of the fire community um, and even prescribed fire and other people very much, you know, I don't want anything to do with fire. You know, put it out if you can. If you can't, some some people even just let it burn off my property. I don't want any firefighters in my property even. So it, it, it ranges, runs the gamut. So you get a wide range of, of personnel and, and opinions on fire. 
So as far as the agencies go, I think there's a lot of support for prescribed burning in, in a lot of other state agencies that I've seen. So my most recent assignment, I actually just got back a couple of weeks ago from Alaska. I was on a, on a fire up there. Wow. Um, that was pretty cool. So I was in the Kenai Peninsula um, on National Wildlife Refuge, and that was a really interesting fire. Um, it was only being fully suppressed on maybe 20% of the fire, um, where it was kind of threatening communities. But the majority of the fire, we were using a, a point protection strategy, where basically it was in a wilderness area, and the only areas of concern really were um, some uh, historical cabins that were like rented out by Fish and Wildlife Service or the Forest Service, and they were concerned about those cabins getting destroyed. So the, the emphasis was put on not putting out the fire, but preparing those cabins and getting the sites prepared and actually setting up sprinkler systems to run on them and everything so that we could then go in, set that stuff up, and then get out real quick and then actually let the fire burn over the site. And part of that comes back to not really prescribed fire, but um, the land management agency up there, um, in this case it was the Fish and Wildlife Service, recognized the value of fire in that system. And they were very adamant to the incident management team, do not put this fire out in the wilderness area. We don't want you putting it out. We actually want it to burn. <laughs> so wow. um, not, not that you know they would have lit a fire there necessarily, but I think they actually did have some prescribed fire areas planned out for future years in, in that area. But uh, it was they, they had, it's almost like a prescribed management of a wildland fire. So they, they took the wildfire and they intentionally wanted to use it as an opportunity to get fire into that system that needed it. So they had a fire adapted system up there as well that hadn't seen fire in a long time and desperately needed it, um, ecologically anyway. Yeah. And, and they were very interested in seeing that wildfire just run its course and do its thing naturally in that area. So it was a 100,000 acre fire. So 100,000 acres ended up getting burned that probably ecologically could use it. Yeah. It did originally, and where it started, it did, it did uh, threaten the community, a couple of towns up there. But barring that, as long as we can keep this community safe and keep the highway open, other than that, let the fire burn and let it do its thing. So it was kind of a, the attitude, wow. which was really interesting to see. So Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Talking to Chris Hoving, uh, got the sense that the DNR doesn't necessarily like to do anything but suppress wildfires. Is that in line with your experience? I wouldn't necessarily phrase it that way. I would say that it is true that DNR doesn't just let things burn. So we definitely don't have a let burn policy. We do suppress every wildfire, um, but we will suppress some wildfires if there's a fire man or some kind of a wildfire plan in place, like in say some state parks or some uh, game areas or places like that, some forested areas. If there's a wildfire plan in place in advance where we know that we can better suppress this fire more safely and um, and essentially meet resource management objectives, essentially we could we could suppress this fire at natural breaks. Like say, instead of putting in a bulldozer line through wilderness area, we could say, well, let's just let it burn to this river. But our preference generally is, you know, if, we're, if, we, if it's a site that needs fire, we prefer to do a prescribed burn when we can have a lot more control. So we also don't have, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of wilderness like they do in that part of Alaska, yeah. where you can, you have, where, you, where you have the option of just letting the fire go and knowing that there's nothing, you know, until it hits the ocean, there is nothing there. Yeah. Yeah. That it can, there, there are, there's no private property, there's absolutely nothing that it could possibly impact, not even a power line, so there was nothing. So in those areas, letting it go was, was an option. Whereas we can't really just have a let burn policy in Michigan. I don't think that's practical really in, that in the state. So, but there's ways you can work on your suppression using essentially modified suppression techniques to be able to take advantage of areas that you can meet resource management objectives with that wildfire. Interesting. Massage the fire where it needs to be. Yeah, where you're still suppressing it, but you're suppressing it in a way that you, know, you don't have to be really, really heavy handed at suppressing it. Sometimes it's more safe even not to be heavy-handed at suppressing it and to not put people in dangerous areas 
when you don't have a, a resource that's being threatened. Sure. Um, just thinking about that peninsula. Yeah. It sounds like a beautiful assignment, being like unabated wilderness. It was. It was pretty cool. Although the it being, I was in that one. I was in kind of an administrative role in the incident management team. Um, I was a situation unit leader, where the, that basically is in charge of the GIS and the mapping um, and yeah. the field observers who are out collecting data. They basically bring all your data to you. It's kind of like the intelligence unit in the fire, where you're gathering all the data and all the intel and the information. So that was my role. So I was basically stationed in an elementary school classroom for the entire three weeks I was up there. So I didn't really, I, I took one helicopter ride to take a kind of recon flight of the fire just so I could get a good understanding of it and to actually map the perimeter with GPS. I had the GPS going in the helicopter as we flew the perimeter because parts of the fire perimeter in the wilderness are actually inaccessible by foot. You, even if you wanted to, it would take you probably weeks just to get to it on foot. So because it was so hard to get to and a lot of it was peatland and bog and muskeg and things like that too. So really hard to get to, so yeah. helicopter, they used air resources a lot, and helicopter was the only way to even see a lot of the fire. Wow. So, um, be besides that, and then driving on the road with all the traffic, <laughs> and seeing the fire like everybody else would, um, that was pretty much my only actually seeing the fire. No it was interesting, working on a fire assignment for three weeks, and only seeing the fire, I think, twice. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> a beautiful area, though. I would highly recommend the Kenai Peninsula if anybody wants to go take a trip up there, so it's beautiful. I've heard the classrooms are great too. Yeah, yeah, the, the elementary school is really nice. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> Sterling Elementary School. So, <laughs> highly recommended. All right, that's about all the time we've got. Uh, cool. Glenn, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate talking to you. Nice talking to you too. Yeah, and we'll uh, hopefully talk to you again soon. Yeah, hope so. Okay. See you on a fire somewhere. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, don't forget to go to the Fire Council's website, firecouncil.org, and thank you for listening to Learn Baby Burn through the Michigan Prescribed Fire Council. Learn Baby Burn is edited and produced by me, Paul Mayer. All music is composed and performed by me, Paul Mayer. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get notified of future episodes, and check us out online at firecouncil.org, as well as on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks to Glenn for the interview and to the Michigan Department of Natural Resources for letting us use their conference room. Thanks for burning some time with me. We'll see you next time. <laughs>